Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing The Barefoot Investor by Scotty Pape, The Barefoot Investor, the only money guide you will ever need. Yes, we are re-reviewing. We did it about two years ago, and it was, it's time for a redo. He'd sold 150,000 copies uh, when we spoke to him two years ago. It's now well and truly over a million copies, and considering it's a largely Australian book and there's only 23 or 4 million, Almost 5% of Australia has bought and read his book. Absolutely. And one of our hidden motives for doing this episode again is because it's one of our most perennially found episodes on our feed. So when people go to find it and they click on it, they're listening to our stuff from <laughs> uh, early 2017 yeah, at the very sucks. start and it's just horrible. It's our fifth most popular app and, and it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's time for a redo with a new equipment, new approach. And the Barefoot Investor, he talks about uh, personal finance and, you know, saving and making and growing wealth uh, through the analogy of an apple tree. So through nature, you can get a lot of powerful analogies and metaphors. And when it comes to finance and investing, it's the idea of planting and growing and then harvesting. So if you're going to plant an apple tree and the goal is to get a few apples, you don't just throw a few seeds on the Saturday night, um, throw a bit of water on it, a bit of uh, nutrients, the cow manure and whatever stuff like that to get it going. You don't then just rock up on the Sunday morning and with your hands in the air going, where, where, where the hell are my apples, right? That's <laughs> you, just ridiculous. You definitely don't. And uh, to extend this analogy even further, if you know, it starts to show a bit of uh, promise, you don't just rip that seedling up and try to move it to somewhere sunny a week later. You don't watch the news and panic thinking there's no rain forecast for the next five days. Mm. You don't go out there and Google how to get a thousand apples in one day and uh, try to do the, the get apples quick schemes. It's, it's, all, it's, it's, all, it's all about planting uh, and letting it do its thing, setting it up in the right conditions first and foremost, but then you just got to wait. Mm. And then a year later, you go back and there might be a few cheeky little hard sour apples, um, branches are still young, but o- over time, you kind of, once it's been set and put in place, you kind of forget about it. And then after years and years and after decades, all of a sudden it's 30 uh, meters tall, thick and full of apples and then all your grandkids and everything can just be sitting under the apple tree and eating the apples. Yeah, nice. So what we're doing here is we're going to plant it uh, in the right conditions and then we're going to let it grow. So the first section, it's in nine nine steps. The first section is plant and the first step is what Barefoot says is to schedule monthly Barefoot date nights to get yourself set up right. So when you make big financial decisions and make the big moves that are done in, in this book, you can literally save, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars, some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So what he's saying to make this enjoyable, because it's a bit boring and you know going to the bank and changing a few things around like that, he says make it fun. So actually go out for dinner, order the, you know, the classic half a kilo rump steak with a bottle of the top of the range red wine and really just go for it for this evening because what you're going to do, even though you're going to spend 300 bucks on your dinner, you're going to be saving a lot more than that by these little decisions that you're making. Yeah, you got to make sure you do them as well. Don't just uh, go all out and then forget to do it. But one big one is uh, the banking. So he says that you know, in, in Australia, and I'm sure it's uh, applicable everywhere, the, the average amount of fees people spend is $477 per year, which is crazy. So that's like any monthly account fees, any overdrawing fees, any like ATM withdrawal fees, all these things that you think is two or three or 10 bucks at a time, they really add up to, you know, on average $477 per year. So if you can get yourself set up with the right kind of banking, it means you're saving yourself 477 bucks a year. 
because these ATM fees, they don't cost the bank anything at all. And banks, are they're, they're private, so they are competing against each other. And you will find banks out there which scrap this charge altogether and, and don't lay this on you. So Scotty thinks that banks are a bit like a giant corporate octopus with their tentacles that wrap around you and squeeze as much money out of you as they possibly can. In the case of Australia, they're making $30 billion a year in profits for a country of just $24 million. So um, they're the biggest companies in Australia for a reason and all they're doing is just squeezing the money out of you. That's how they make their profit. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Uh, one thing he sp- suggests specifically is ING Direct, uh, which is specific at the moment. But the main things that you can apply generally is that firstly, it has to have zero monthly fees. So you shouldn't have any ongoing fees. Secondly, no ATM withdrawal fees. Uh, thirdly, you can have like a, a high interest rate on your savings. And he says probably in general, there are like certain online banks. They don't have physical branches, which means they're not hiring as many staff, means they don't have as many overheads, which means that you get to uh, have those savings. And then if you do these simple decisions, right, it's very quick and very easy to do. In Australia, you're going to save about 500 bucks a year. And then if you look at it through the perspective of decades and the mm. apple tree we were talking about earlier, it makes a huge difference over time. Most certainly. The next thing that we need to get set up right is our superannuation, our retirement savings, which in the US could be like your 401k or your IRA. Uh, I think it's your RRSP and TSFA in Canada, your SIP and ISA in UK and the KiwiSaver in New Zealand. But yeah, basically any any of these long-term pension or retirement saving schemes. Mm, so in every country, they're all set up in the same kind of way that they actually offer a real big tax advantage if you uh, siphon off some of your money into the direction of these funds because it means that the government at the end of your working career doesn't have to pay pension. So they really want you to actually set yourself up so you don't have to uh, rely on welfare at the very end. Yeah, Barefoot says it's uh, a good tax dodge, better than like a Cayman Islands or a Swiss bank account because mm-hmm. like the top, uh, the top tax rate in Australia is 47%. But if you put that money towards super, you're only paying 15%. So that's a hell of a lot of tax savings by uh, sh- shuffling a bit of your money towards super instead. So when it comes to super funds, and we've covered this a few times in different investing books in the past, and investing in general, there's two ways you can do it. You can do it the active way. So you go with a fund and what they do is they go out there, they pick the stocks when they're cheap, sell them when they're high, they time the market and they're always studying and analyzing. And because they're spending so much of their highly paid time, the fees going with them are absolutely huge compared to index funds. And what index funds are is you actually just buy the average of, say, a thousand different stocks, like it might be the Dow Jones or uh, you can buy the whole ASX. And then there's no one doing any stock picking on stock timing just because you're buying a whole slice of the market at the same time. Because you're uh, investing passively rather than trying to time and beat the market, as you said, there's nowhere near as much time invested and effort invested from the manager's part. So rather than paying fees to fund the fund manager's Ferraris, you're just saving those fees, which over the course of a whole career, you know, four or five decades, is going to add up to, he says, potentially 174000 in fees on sort of like the average superannuation investment. And you might think because the active funds are spending so much time on it, they're going to actually perform better. But there's been a lot of research to show that the index funds actually perform much better when accounting for fees. So not only do you 
uh, get less fees and you save 174 grand over your lifetime, you're actually going to outperform all the active funds as well. So a few of the things that you want to be looking out for when you're selecting your uh, when either your superannuation or your retirement savings, obviously the lower the fees, the better. So you need to be looking at both the annual administrative fees and also the percentage fees on your uh, on your lump sum. So a good uh, baseline to go for is anything around 0.1% of the fees. And if they're that low, almost exclusively, they're going to be investing passively, which we've mentioned. So that's the fee rate that you should be getting at. And if you go with that, you're going to be saving hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, over your lifetime, which, you know, the future you, like if you're lucky, there will be a time when you're 60, 70 or 80 and this one decision you make today is going to make a massive difference to what you are in the future. So we won't be offended if you just pause it right now, um, find your latest super account, do a bit of Googling, find out what their fees are and then get ready to make the change if you if you can. That's it. So, so far, by setting up our banking right, we've saved about 500 bucks a year. If you make a one change from a, a, a super fund with a high rate to a super fund with a low rate, you could have saved yourself a couple of hundred thousand dollars or you know, made a couple of extra hundred thousand dollars by the time you retire. The other thing that we need to set up properly at the start is insurance. And he's got a few golden rules of insurance. And the first and the most important is that you only insure things that could kill you financially. So these kind of things are like your house burning. Your, your, for some people, it's their car. For some people, it's hospital in those critical moments. It might be you dying, which isn't good. Um, and if you're selfish, <laughs> you're not going to get the benefit from the insurance. So <laughs> maybe, maybe no point. Or if you're unable to work. Yeah, so things that either, you know, if you can't work, obviously that's going to kill you financially. If your house burns down, that's going to kill you financially. If you think about you buying a new iPhone and you get offered the extended warranty, if your iPhone dies, it's not going to kill you financially. So Papey reckons that's probably not the uh, best decision. He said, forget about the little things that won't matter so much, only insure the big things. And when you are insuring those big things, pick a higher excess because paying that higher excess means then you get a lower, lower fee. And the third thing you need to do is don't just automatically pay your premium each year. Understand that the insurance companies are really sweet talking and showering their new customers with all these gifts and little uh, uh, sweet little deals, which you could actually be getting a slice of as well. So if you just simply call up your insurance company and say, hey, I'm looking to move and they're going to shit themselves. And then you say, all right, I'll stay only if you give me all these little sweet gifts that you're offering all these new customers. And pretty much every time they're going to just say yes automatically. So that's what we want to be setting up. We're you know getting ready. You know I guess we're tilling the soil here to get ready to plant our seeds. We're setting ourselves up right with our, our banking, our superannuation, our retirement savings, and our insurance. So that's step one, which is all about planting the seeds, which you can do over a few bottles of red, and uh, make some massive financial decisions and make some massive savings. Step two is all about setting up your buckets. Yeah, he calls it the serviette strategy. So rather than having a full dollar-by-dollar budget assigned to every single item that you might have to spend money on throughout the month, he gives us a simple, simple, simple strategy that could be drawn on a serviette. So he says, from your income, he says it's like a tap, and the tap, you're filling up buckets, and there's three buckets. So there's a blow bucket, a mojo bucket, and a grow bucket. So the first one and the biggest bucket is the blow bucket. Now, unfortunately, that blow bucket has got a big hole in it. 
So generally, your income will go straight into your blow bucket. And he says that 60% of that is going to fall out the hole in the bucket, which is your daily expenses. It's important to try to keep that to 60%. So you've got your other 40%. And of that 40%, you're going 10% is going to splurge. 10% percent is going to splurge, which is your treats, I guess. That's the things that, you know, they're not the necessities, which are part of the 60% daily expenses, but the 10% of things that, you know, might be going to the movies, might be eating out for dinner. They're just the things that aren't the necessities. The Another 10% is called smile, which is the long-term saving. So, that's things like maybe going away for the weekend or going on an overseas holiday for two weeks. And then the remaining 20% he calls the fire extinguisher, which we're going to use to put out a few fires along the way. So, one of the most important things about setting up your buckets is to make it automatic. It's a common thing that comes up in books that you, if you rely on willpower, eventually you're going to crack. If you've got budgets, it's so hard to stick to because one day when you're uh, at the bar, you're going to buy that extra round of beers, even it, no, it blows your budget. But in these cases, if you set up your new accounts with cards, he recommends you actually set up a, a have a card for Splurge, for example, which automatically takes 10% of your income. And then you know when you run out of what's in that account, then you need to go home uh, at 10 p.m. instead of staying around for that extra round of beers. Yeah, exactly. He says that you should set up these four different accounts. And when you're setting up your pay, you should have these automatically done for you. Because as you say, that if you're using willpower to do it each month or each fortnight whenever you get paid, uh, there's probably times when you might reallocate some of these things. Oh, <laughs> almost certainly. <Yeah>. Hey? <laughs> so instead, you need to. He says you should have four separate accounts. So daily expenses, sixty percent. Splurge, ten percent. Smile, ten percent. And fire extinguisher, twenty percent. Now, something that's going to be very difficult for everyone, including myself, is setting the barefoot benchmark. Like having it just that sixty percent of your expenses. That's difficult in yourself. So you might need to do a bit of analysis to see what your daily expenses are. And maybe just cut some of your subscriptions and uh, some of your habits spending to get it down to sixty percent. Matt, I see here in the notes that you've put in, you know, the sixty percent expenses. You've put Netflix as a necessity. <laughs> Is that? I reckon that, that could be a splurge potentially. No, that's uh, that's a necessity. That's a necessity. Okay, I'd okay. Say. Yeah, yeah, especially. Fair enough. Well, the ne- <laughs> the next bucket is the Mojo bucket, and he says the Mojo bucket. This is just an extra uh, account off to the side. Best one that it's one that you can't access very easily. And he says this bucket is the I don't stress about money bucket. He gives it, it gives you that extra little spring in your step that you know you've got a little bit of buffer mm. if any shit gets crazy. Yeah, because sooner or later, shit is going to get crazy. And if you just got two grand just sitting there and your car breaks down, you can just use these two grand. You don't need to go out there and get a, a loan or a credit card and pay interest or anything like that because you've got that two grand sitting there, which is a nice little buffer for some of the things that life's going to throw at you. Yeah, so our blow bucket is our income. That's where we've got it split up. And the mojo bucket, he says, first started off with a deposit of two grand. Uh, we're going to revisit the mojo bucket uh, in one of the later steps. But at the moment, have two grand sitting there in your mojo bucket that you can't easily access and tap into when you need to pay your Netflix subscription. And then the third bucket we've got is the grow bucket which is all your investments, which is going to be really important to pick those apples at the end of your uh, your tree and end of your life. And this is things like property, super. And just as a typical uh, rule of thumb, uh, in some cases, every dollar you put into this bucket due to compound interest, you're going to double it every seven to 10 years. So in 
say, 40 years' time, you're going to double it four times, right? Mm. Which is uh, 2 to the power of 4, 16. Yeah, nice. Um, which is That's very which is a lot. So, rather than spending that four bucks today on a latte, you're really going to have um, six, uh, 40, 64. <laughs> yeah, nice. $64 <laughs> um, in, in, in later. Yeah. And so, thankfully, in Australia, our uh, super does it. We automatically have to put 9.5% away and that we don't, we never see it. It goes off to a super account that we uh, can't touch, we can't access, and that's what you need to do with your grow bucket. So, if you're in, if you're in Oz, your grow bucket's taken care of itself and we've already selected the right kind of super in the previous step. Uh, if you're overseas, perhaps, uh, he says that you know about 10% of your income should go into this grow bucket, which you can never touch until you retire. Absolutely, at these early stages, and we'll revisit that number a bit later as well. Step three is all about dominoing your debts. So all around the world right now, household debt is at record levels. In Australia, especially, we've got the highest in the world. And when it comes to it, it's a lot of the time it's all about uh, buying things to look good and status and all of this, and it doesn't actually provide real meaningful utility for you in your life. If you just think now. If you just look around with all your stuff, think about the things you bought five years ago, those big expenses that give you genuine happiness today. The truth is for all the millions of dollars of shit you're going to buy over your lifetime, all of it is going to be absolutely meaningless. And at the same time, in a lot of cases, a lot of people are going into their, into debt to actually buy all this crap that gives them nothing in return. They, there's a study here, which is a bit of an outrageous study. They, they surveyed 50,000 Australians and they found that 53% of people who are earning $200,000 a year or more were angry or frustrated at their cost of living. Now, that's pretty ridiculous and we need to get some perspective on that. The average Australian wage, which is around $80,000 a year, if you plug that into the global rich list, you'll find that you're in the top 0.27% of richest people in the world. Mm. So that's pretty ridiculous. You, if you're in the top 0.27%, you can't be complaining about the cost of living. It just means you're buying too much crap. Yeah, absolutely. It's the uh, the old uh, hedonic treadmill. You might think that when you're earning more money, a lot of these people are on, on 200 grand and they're still pissed off that all your problems are going to be solved. But if you're on this treadmill, it's always just more, more, more. You get that pay rise. All of a sudden, your living expenses just adapt to whatever your pay rise is. Mate, I've experienced this uh, recently. <laughs> I had a bit of a bump in my pay and I was just telling you recently, man, I've, I've got no idea how I've changed my lifestyle um, but all of a sudden, I'd, all this pay just automatically just disappeared, this, this rise I've got. So, that's how, how it actually happens. If you don't set yourself up to actually control your expenses as you go forward, like a bucket strategy, then you're just going to be pissed off like everyone else. Yeah, I would say for me as well, man, I changed... Uh, jobs where I was no longer driving to work, where I was I used to be driving, paying a lot of petrol, paying a lot of like road tolls. Also, haven't been drinking, so that's a couple of hundred bucks a month. I don't know where that extra couple of hundred bucks a month is gone though. It vanishes. It's not. There's not. Someone I used to uh, smoke and buy a packet of that every day when yeah. I was a uni student. I somehow did it. I'm like, <laughs> where's that money? Where's gone? it? It's just vanished. <laughs> but that's that hedonic treadmill. So Big Scotty says that we need to consciously spend on things that will genuinely make your life better. 
Uh, and a few tips he actually gives. He says, get a bloody good pillow because a pillow is important and uh, a couple hundred bucks for a good pillow is going to really uh, make you feel phenomenal. And also socks and jocks. Don't get the ones with the holes in them. Throw those out. Get a few new freshies to, to make yourself feel good as well. Yeah, so there are some material things like those who that actually add some utility into your life. Buying that Rolex watch, it obviously doesn't. Not so so um, just be conscious about where your money goes. My, and watch, then- my watch just broke actually yesterday. Did it? I won't get the Rolex. I'll get a, <laughs> something just to tell the time. You don't even need a watch, mate. You got an iPhone. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so this is a huge issue: is this um, getting in in is credit cards around the world, right? So uh, even the name of the credit card is a con. It's not. It's not a credit. Mm. You're not getting credit. No one's getting, <laughs> you're just going into debt. <laughs> there should be a debt card. There is nothing good really that comes from a credit card, and people. A lot of people spin narratives like they are getting borrowing money from the bank interest free to you know to whatever that everyone spins a narrative, but at the end of the day, uh, credit cards aren't good things. Yeah, <laughs> mate. There's there's a bit here that uh, I don't know how much was from the book and how much was from you, but uh, <laughs> getting a, a credit card, the banks know that it's sort of like getting a little dog in that if you if you're holding on to a dog, you're never going to give it back, even if you know it. It can bite you. Maybe it takes a piss on the couch. Maybe it takes a little turd in the middle of the lounge room. You're not going to give it back. And it's the same with the credit card. You know that, okay, now you probably shouldn't get it if you get the credit card and then you, you know, maybe one time when you're running a little bit low and then you can buy that extra pair of shoes on the credit card. Mm. You know, it's probably not the best thing, but you're never going to give it back. Yeah, you're going to be slumped for the interest, but yeah, you're always going to have it. So debt is its slavery, right? And it really eats away at your self-esteem. So we really want to domino our debts as soon as we can. And to domino our debts, uh, we're going to use 20% of our fire extinguisher income. Yeah. So he's got five steps here to get rid of your debts. And the first step is calculate. So first and foremost, you need to at least, you're probably telling yourselves a few different lies in your head if you've got a whole bunch of different debts. Get it out of the head and onto a piece of paper. Work out firstly what the balance of each uh, type of debt is. And then secondly, the minimum monthly repayment for each of those. So you need to have a clear picture. What's the minimum that you need to pay each and every month on each of those debts? Absolutely. So for some people, this is going to be the hard part because it takes the courage of actually just going and figuring it out what the debt is rather than just like sweeping it under the rug. Number two is negotiate. So in each case, you can actually call and try and get a better rate. If you negotiate between banks, they want your debt because you're just paying them shit that costs them no money at all to, for them to service. So you do have a bit of bargaining power on the uh, interest rate they actually pay on this debt. Yeah, it is worth a phone call if you've if you've uh, you've got uh, you know a credit card and you can get a, a different card somewhere else with a much lower rate. It's a good thing to do. But he says you can't get into that trap of the zero interest balance transfer and then never pay it off and then try and get another one a year later. He says that's a bad habit to get into. You need to uh, yes do the smart thing of negotiating, but don't just try and uh, get the the little golden pony that's going to come along and save you with the 0% interest because you probably fuck it up again. Yeah, absolutely. And it's probably important to note that Scotty in his book, he's actually got a whole bunch of scripts mm. which you can actually use, uh, which is well and truly worth the cost of the book alone. Step three is eliminate. So quite simply, if you've got a credit card, cut it up. Cut it up. Don't no use it again. Anymore. Quite simple, but really important. So step four is detonate. So obviously, if you've got a whole bunch of different debts, perhaps you've got you know you've got two credit cards and a personal loan, and uh, yeah, 
and you owe your mate 50 bucks for buying dinner, uh, obviously, you need to pay the minimum amount of payments of each of those and that minimum payment comes out of your 60%. So, remembering from our income, 60% was for our uh, daily expenses. That's where the minimum comes from each one. Now, the cool bit here is that we have to use our 20%, which is our fire extinguisher, and we point that fire extinguisher straight towards the amount of debt, which is the lowest total balance. So, if you got you know a two grand on one card, five grand on one card, and ten grand as a personal loan, you put your twenty percent fire extinguisher all towards the lowest balance, that two grand credit card, until it's paid off fully. Mm, and then number five, once you've put out all of those credit fires, all those debt fires, you need to go out and celebrate. Enjoy each time you knock one off. Have a few extra beers. And uh, <laughs> don't put it on the card, though. Don't put it on the card. <laughs> but you really need to celebrate these wins in life because that's a massive one. Is getting out of debt and that slavery. Yeah, hundred percent. So I'll just I'll, I'll re-hit that. So you're remembering that you're paying every the minimum out of your sixty percent, and then using your fire extinguisher twenty percent on the lowest. And obviously, once you knock that one off, you move your fire extinguisher to the next lowest. Each time you're going to knock one off, knock one off, get a bit of momentum. It gets a little bit better. Gets a little bit easier. You're paying less of your minimums and you're knocking off these debts. All right, so that's part one. It's all about the planting. We've set up your financial infrastructure, your super. You've gotten rid of your credit cards. You've cut them up and you've got the right amount of insurance. So they're the little seeds that we're planting and these decisions are going to be massive when it comes to ten, uh, when time goes by and the effects of compound interest hit you in the right way or the wrong way if you're mm. in debt. 100%. And part two now is grow. And so, obviously, we've set our soil up. The seeds have been planted. Now, it's time to water this bad boy and get it growing. And one big thing he talks about is how to double your income, which is a, a good section because I think a lot of personal finance books are all about uh, being frugal and cost-cutting and saving money. But there is a bit of a limit to how much you can save, but there's no limit to how much you can earn. So, if, you can, if you've got yourself set up correctly with step with part one, then you can start to think about how can you actually grow your income, not just how can you save more. And I think a lot of people are more attracted to those books where it are all about all these little tricks and tips and these silver bullets on saving a couple hundred bucks here and there and, and all that. But they're really not that effective actually in terms of contributing to your wealth. I think it's more difficult for people to look at the other side of the equation where you can actually grow, double, triple, quadruple your income. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're going to actually go down that path and increase your income, you're probably going to have to change as an actual person mm. to become someone who's that effective to actually warrant that kind of income. So, I think it's much more difficult to look at that, uh, the upside of increasing your income for a lot of people. Yeah. If we, if we go back to that bucket analogy, one approach is to, you know, we know there's a hole in our blow bucket. One approach is to, you know, try to plug that hole, make that hole as small as possible so less falls out. But the other approach here is to turn that tap up so you can get more and more flowing into that bucket. And one approach here is to obviously get get yourself a pay rise. So in your job, if you can make more money, that's a phenomenal start to turn that tap up. He's got five different uh, bangers to go about it. The first thing you need to do is make a commitment. And the simplest way to become a multimillionaire in a job is to commit to being the best at what you do. So, if you go out there and acquire really scarce skills that nobody has, all of a sudden, you've got career capital, you've got leverage, you can trade it in for a pay rise just because that the, the boss, they don't want to get rid of you because you're too important in that organization. So, you can act absolutely 
ask for a significant pay bump. Yeah, he says that you know CEOs are earning 200 times the bottom rung employee, but that doesn't mean they're 200 times smarter. They don't work 200 times harder. It's just that they have made this commitment to being the best, constantly improving themselves and working their way up. Bit like the old uh, Matthew effect, where success begets success, and those with more get given more, and those with less get given less. It's a pretty brutal analogy, but it's well and truly true that if you are disproportionately scarce and valuable, you're going to get a ridiculously disproportionate amount of return because of that. Mm. The next step in uh, looking for a, a pay rise within your job is to do your homework. So before you just ask the boss for more money, you need to really get prepared in terms of know what sort of job they're expecting of you, what sort of job you're doing, know what other people with similar jobs are sort of earning you know, and think about how are you making your boss's life easier as an employee. I think that's really important because you might have your job description which you can look at but it all really just comes down to how are you making your boss's life easier or how are you making them look to who their, their boss is. So, if you've got a bit of empathy to look at it from their point of view and then uh, set up some ambitious goals with that in mind that is going to make their life easier over the next 12 months. Another important thing is to take control of your performance review, You know, whether it's every three or six or 12 months. Most people just, they know it's coming up. They just go in there. They just wing it. They're unprepared and they're just ready for whatever the boss says. You need to be prepared. Go in there with some strong statements about what you've achieved over the last three or six or 12 months and really sell yourself. And number four is you need to put these goals into your calendar. Do a little bit every day toward these goals and track your progress and make sure you're nailing all these promises that you made during this performance review. Yeah, so make sure you know that you know if you don't get a pay rise, then ask what do you need to do in order to get a pay rise and that's when you need to start planning these sorts of things. And then so showing this progress, showing the achievements you've made and then also the fifth step is to casually follow your boss up over the next 12 months in that you know it, it's not it doesn't have to be a super uh, planned super official thing just follow them up casually say that this is what you've been achieving show them a few wins along the way so that you're ready in the next performance review to really sell yourself mm, so that's how to get your pay rise another important thing he says if you want to actually maximize the amount of income that you can bring in as an employee if you look around at the highest paid people at your work they're probably going to be doing something like leading everybody or they're going to be bringing home the bacon for your organization. So that means they're selling the goods, they're the most effective at making the goods, or they're marketing the goods. So these are disproportionately the most valuable uh, skills you can have out of all the skills. Yeah, because there is a lot of competent people at doing the job itself, some of these skills that are a lot more rare and a lot more valuable is, as you say, either marketing and selling goods or leading people and being, the, being a person who people will look up to. So they're two vital skills that you can start to develop as well. So if you're listening right now and thinking, oh, well, I've not trained up in that, you might be a receptionist at your work thinking this doesn't apply to you, but it really does because you could offer to do, you could go up to your marketing manager at your work and offer them to do some free, stu- free work on the side, some of their admin stuff. And in the process, you can actually start building a network of the people who hire in the food chain in marketing or sales and at the same time, you're going to be understanding the marketing challenges at your work. So working for free is a really good tactic to actually build the skills that you need uh, in the long run that are going to serve you. Okay, so that's the first way to make more money and grow your income is to, within the job that you've got, start to uh, get get yourself a pay rise. And I think uh, in this case, man, for a job, 
it is limited, the upside of what you can actually earn. The things that don't have a limit on how much you can earn, it comes down to um, business systems, which is actually how Barefoot get, got rich. So Barefoot's got this uh, personal finance book, but at the same time, he didn't get rich really this way of, that he's prescribing. He did it by building his own business system mm. and business network. Yeah, exactly. So the idea of doing something with that you can harness the benefits of entrepreneurship and business, that's going to uh, give you even more acceleration in growth. So as you say, Barefoot, he talks about you know setting up your super and save a couple of hundred grand and um, saving on your bank fees and getting rid of your debts. Obviously, that, that's only so much uh, of his net wealth when you compare it to you know selling a million copies of his book, having all these people who he does um, financial advice for. Uh, that's where he's making his real money. And he's built this brand now where he can charge God knows what um, to appear on Triple M and all, all of those kind of radio stations. So that's where it's uh, disproportionately unlimited upside to your income. Now, for him to get to this point, it's really interesting. He actually writes about this. He says at the very start, he was working at like a just a typical financial ASX kind of listed company, like everybody else, like we all are in jobs right now. And he decided to start working for free a lot on the weekends after work, working 80-hour weeks. Yeah, so he started like hosting a radio show uh, about personal finance and giving some financial advice. And off the back of that, he started getting some, I guess, clients where he was freelancing. So pretty much he was working full-time during the day. And then after working on the weekends, he was doing freelance financial advising. He was taking on more and more clients. And then he sort of built it up and built it up and built it up to the point where he's effectively working two jobs. He was working in his full-time job and he was working on his you know, freelance side business as well. And he calls this like the swing on the trapeze strategy and that you don't just jump out of your full-time job and think you're going to build a business. You're hanging on to the trapeze until you grab the next one. So he says it's like Tarzan swinging on a vine. You're hanging on to a job, you're swinging, you grab the next one. When that next one is ready to hold your weight, that's when you can let go of the job. So he's built this up over years before he quit his job. So when you play this game of sitting on the trapeze, it's a little bit like that analogy of crabs in a bucket. I don't know if you heard of that one, Ashley. No. So this is real natural phenomenon. As a crab tries to crawl out of the bucket, all the other crabs, they just grab onto a leg, grab onto its arm or whatever whatever they can to keep that crab in the same bucket. Really? That's exactly what happens. Or it's just a metaphor that's just powerful and it's just uh, <laughs> got some traction. But this is actually going to happen if you're someone who's going to try and swing on this trapeze. You're going to have employees who are going to start gossiping and bitching about you. It's a bit like that other analogy. It's like getting in the arena. If you are in the arena and everyone else is in the sidelines hurling abuse, in the arena, you're going to get bloody, sweaty. You're going to get thrown on the ground with mud on your face and dirt on, uh, dirt all over you. But this is just part of the package deal if you're getting into the arena, which is the same as swinging on the trapeze. Yeah, <laughs> and same as crabs in a bucket as well. <laughs> so <laughs> I like it. So basically he's saying that you know, if you're e- taking either of these paths or both of these paths, you know, if, if you're trying to build yourself up to be a more valued employee, you're learning more skills, you're working for an extra hour late at night, all the other employees are going to gossip saying, oh, this, this person's just sucking up to the boss and they're a real goody two-shoes. Or if you try to do something on the side and you're working on the weekends and people are going to gossip saying, oh, this this person sucks. They're so boring, man. They, they never come out for drinks. They're just going mm-hmm. to work on their business on the side. Either way, there's going to be those crabs trying to drag you back down uh, to the bucket rather than you're trying to climb out. 
the other bloody crabs are trying to drag you down. Yep. So you've got to be, uh, as you say, mate, it's part of the package deal. It comes with it. Uh, so that's the upside of your income, which is really, if you want to hit the, the top tier, then that's part of the, we kind of outlined some of the things you can do there. Step four in this book is buying your home. Now, like if you're in Australia especially and probably all around the world, you probably understand that housing is ridiculously expensive and much more expensive than it was for when your parents were your age, for example. Uh, in Australia, we've got the highest level of home ownership in, in the world, which is unique for us. Um, in Europe, it just doesn't have the same attraction. So Australia's got the most overpriced housing in the world, uh, which is a fact, according to Scotty. And at the same time, we've got the highest household debt level in history. And at the same time as that, we got the lowest interest rates that we've mm. ever had. So with the highest household debt levels at the lowest interest <laughs> rate, right? It's maybe manageable and serviceable <laughs> now, but as soon as those interest rates go up at some stage, which they will because home loans are um, decades of a commitment, so eventually it is going to be a bubble if not that we're in it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you're very cautious there. Basically, we're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, it's it's not. This is not sustainable. Uh, but it is still such. It's something that everyone wants. Everyone, it's uh, definitely you know idolized that everyone wants to buy their own home and people want to get in the property market early and they want to buy their next investment property. Uh, and he says that people they're, they're drinking the Kool Aid in that property, property, property. It's especially in Australia. That's a thing that everybody wants. But aside to that, so we're not on one side. He's saying, "Look, there there are all these risks that come with it." But at the same time, the barefoot says that buying your own home and owning your own home debt free is probably the best financial decision you you will ever make. So the place where you live, if you can buy that and own that, then you're you're certainly that's an important step on this on this barefoot journey. It's like a forced savings plan because you you have to pay off your mortgage, as we said earlier, with the adaption. Whenever the money's forced, you won't even notice the difference anyway. There's some big mistakes that we make with property. Some people are just waiting for the crash before they get in. Some people are buying the shit that they can't afford. Some people are buying an investment property first and thinking it's just going to be a chess piece to get equity to trade up to their home. And a big one I think is number four, which is they rent instead of buying that property, but then they forget to save. Yeah. He says that renting is not, not the worst idea and that it is, it is good in that if you can rent and then save to buy a house, that's, that's important. But he says that one of the big things that he, he hates that he sees people doing, they buy an investment property, which is a you know a shitty little house out in the sticks that they don't want to live in. They try to uh, get an income off that as an investment property and then they're renting somewhere close to the city where they're paying a lot of money. He calls it rent vesting or they think they're rent vesting. They think they're doing the right thing by they bought somewhere shit, making money, but they're living somewhere nice. He's saying you, just, you should buy somewhere that you want to live first and foremost. And number five is they don't consider other options, which I think is very common in Australia. There are also other investment vehicles. Even though some of your money's in super now, which is in shares, you can actually buy shares uh, and and bonds and all these kind of things right now as well. So number five is supercharging your wealth. And this is using the stock market with compound interest to get some serious returns over history, the stock market has never failed to deliver. It's always on the way up uh, despite minor blips in bubbles and all that kind of history. It's always over the long term going up. Yeah. And so at this point, he says, now that we've sort of taken care of everything else, so you know we've got rid of our debts, 
You know, we've, we've probably bought our own home. He says, one tweak you should make here is now to increase the amount of money you're putting into your grow bucket. So before it was 95 or 10%, he's saying here you should bump that up to 15%. As we sort of said, you know, you're not going to notice that because it's going straight away automatically into your grow bucket. You're not going to notice a, a big hit. But over the long term, when you retire, you'll thank yourself that you made that small increase. So 9.5% to 15%, you might only think that it's only going to be 50% more, but it's not. It's a whole lot more than that because when you're putting it with compound interest, it has a ridiculous amount of difference in the long run. So he's got an example here. So say you got this lady named Jane who's 30, primary school teacher, earning 72 grand a year, um, currently has 50 grand in super. Now, if she goes autopilot to 15%, it's going to be 330 bucks extra a month. And you can handle that. You wouldn't even notice that. Won't notice it. So, add a few assumptions of 8% stock market growth, which is historically accurate with 2% inflation. She's actually going to have 570 grand extra at super in her retirement and have over $2 million total in super. Just bumping that up an extra 300 bucks a month ends up being 570 grand when she retires, which is a phenomenal amount of uh, of money and it's just that one small tweak that you can do now to supercharge your wealth. It's going to be a very big deal. There are a lot of old people right now who are absolutely struggling in their old age, so uh, you're going to your old self's going to thank you for it. So all you need to do is simply just easiest way to do it is just email your employer asking them or telling them you want to boost your super to 15% with salary sacrifice. Simply doing that, it's going to set it up. It's a very easy move you can do. He goes on a little bit of a, a side note here and discusses, uh, firstly, the that you shouldn't be borrowing money in order to invest. And secondly, he talks about the difference between a share investor and a property investor. So for the share investor, say if they went and just got a brokerage account and then uh, just bought a couple of grand worth of shares, brokerage fees only 20 bucks and then that's it for 10 years. Don't have to think about it and in 10 years, you sell it then it's back in your account in two days. So, it's a very simple formula with the share investor. Now, for the property investor, say we've got a lady named Paula. She buys a house for 585 grand, a beautiful two-bedroom apartment in a crazy nerve-wracking auction but she gets there. It'll be a 90-day settlement there's 31 grand in stamp duty, three grand in legal fees, 58 grand in the deposit, and then over the next 10 years, she rents it out at 450 bucks a week, making 23 grand a year. So she's going to lose five grand in the first year, and that's after the negative gearing tax break. So you're making a loss of five grand per year on this property. Now the problem is she's losing money every single year, and the only way to make it back is through capital gains. Now, this idea of capital gains is all good and well when you're going through the biggest bull property market in history, but when that stops, the money you're losing is absolutely real. So, it's actually break even. Uh, what she needs to make back is the total annual losses of 51 grand over the 10 years, commissions and legals is 15 grand, stamp duty is 33 grand. So, she may, needs to get 100 grand in capital growth just to break even over that 10 years. Yeah, exactly. So, they are. Uh- Two very important things to consider. Firstly, you know, obviously you need that uh, that sixty grand deposit, uh, and then paying the mortgage where you're losing five grand a year. You need to 
have at least a hundred thousand dollars, so at least a twenty percent uh, capital gain, just to break even before you make any money. If you compare that to investing sixty grand in the share market, where you've got more a lot more flexibility and you don't have this ongoing annual losses, uh, it's a really important consideration to make if you decide in between share investing and and property investing. You definitely you definitely need to weigh up those options, and you and you can't just look at the twenty percent capital growth as a 20% win and most people do that. They just ignore all the losses that yeah, come along that's with right. it. They just see the 100 grand growth in property uh, not understanding that they've actually just broken even. So when it comes to an investment, he says it's all about the cash in your pocket. Everything else is just pure speculation. So step six now is boost your mojo. So remember back at the very start, we put our little mojo aside. That was our two grand little safety buffer. So he says that once you've you know you've taken control of a lot of these other things, you're rid of debts, you've bought a house, you've bumped your super up contributions to fifteen percent. The next thing you need to do is boost your mojo to three months. So he says that your mojo account should go up from two grand to three months worth of daily living expenses. So whatever your sixty um, percent of your income is, you need three months worth of that in your mojo account just to really have that real nice comfortable buffer there. Yeah, it's nice that, you know, one day if your boss has been a prick to you, you can just say, oh, all right, just, I quit. Yeah. And you don't have to really worry about it because you've got a three-month buffer. Yeah, or if, say your, your, your sister gets sick or your brother gets sick and you can take a month off to look after their kids or, you know, for anything that crops up, you know that you've got this three-month buffer where for the next three months, you're not going to be uh, destroyed financially. Part three of the book is Harvest. So we're hitting toward the end here, which is uh, where the apples come in. And you yeah. start start your nibbling away. <laughs> you certainly can. These uh, tasty apples are red delicious for mine or uh, probably not the Granny Smiths. But uh, the step seven, he says, is get the banker off your back. So now that you've bought your home, obviously the, the big part is getting the banker off your back by paying off that mortgage and owning your home clear and debt-free. One of the traps a lot of people fall into is once they get that home, they use that equity to upgrade to a bigger home and then when they're there, they upgrade and upgrade and for their whole entire life that you're actually going to be in debt and debt is slavery according to Barefoot and the whole point of it all is just to trade up to with a new flashier suburb, with flashier neighbors, with everything just flashier just to, ha- uh, just to have everything on show. It's going to be like a little choreographed Instagram feed that you can just have for all of your followers, he reckons. Yeah, so he says that the rather than just going out there and thinking, okay, I'll, I'll start here with this uh, cheap little house and then I'll once I pay a little bit, I'll use that equity to sell that and trade up for a little bit better house and then I'm going to, you know, five years later, I'll, I'll have a bit more equity so I'll sell that and trade up to a bigger house. You never. It's just in this never-ending cycle where you're getting more and more debt because you're getting a more expensive house and taking out more and more debt. So he says instead... Obviously, you want to pay that bad boy off and own your own home free and clear. So when it comes to finances in general, it's got another really powerful analogy. He compares it with a fat person. So if you're a fat person, there's no denying it. You can't hide it. You know it. Your kids know it. Everyone in the street knows it. You're fat. There's no way (laughs) you're going to get around it. Now, when it comes to finances, this is something you can actually hide and it's the opposite. That person pulling up in the Land Rover and that person with that house in Port Melbourne, they might look like they're uh, on the surface really wealthy and going really well, but a lot of the time it's the actual opposite. The more wealthy people are actually driving around that 
that uh, the piece of shit car compared to the the, the one with the, the big four fucking four wheel drive Land Cruiser for the weekend. Yeah, he says it is that uh, vital to really look at yourself in the in the financial mirror and take a good hard look and see what you see because taking control of your personal finances and doing a lot of the steps in this barefoot book are vitally important. So, you know, even though you might uh, on the outside look like you've got the big mortgaged McMansion, you're driving around the Lexus, uh, you're in a fancy tailored suit, if it's on those on the maxed out platinum credit card, it's no good. So instead, you need to really truly understand where you are, what you look like on the, on the financial inside, take some control. 